you know, growing up in Jersey City, you witness a lot that you wouldn't witness in other other um, places. And so, you know, homelessness being one of the bigger things, um, witnessing, you know, I honestly, <laughs> if we're keeping it real, real, I can't, I can no longer tell the difference between um, a firecracker and a gunshot because the area that I lived in was very crime ridden in terms of like, it was drug infested and, and things like that. Like my next door neighbor was a drug dealer. So, and I, I didn't learn that until later on in life. I was always yeah. wondering like, why is, why are different people always going into that house? Like it's never the same person. And then I realized my, my father looked at me like, really Lex, you can't put two together. Come on, re- think real hard. Hi, my name is Alexis Augusto, and I am a model minority. Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about. Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between. This is a show about all of you for all of us. Today, we're talking to Alexis Augusto. Alexis is the director of talent, equity, and inclusion at the four A's. And the four A's is the American Association of Advertising Agencies. That's a lot of letters, Sharon. That's a lot. I think that's why they shortened it to four A's. Oh, so it's kind of like the Fantastic Four. Got it. Got it. The trouble is, though, that then you have to explain it after. (laughs) (laughs) Marketing. (laughs) Go marketing. What I love about Alexis is that she's really dedicated her professional life to bringing diversity and inclusion into the workplace. Like that's her entire role and her function. And she oversees that for all of the big global ad agencies that are in the four A's. Yeah. It's just, I have just envy of having such a cause driven job and you can tell she cares about it. Like I think what's funny is I think we care about it too. Yeah. Because we got into this like really heated discussion. I hope we're still friends, Sharon, about <laughs> whose fault is it, the brand or the agency, like yeah. on representation, so you don't make a really like tone-deaf ad. Right. And yeah, we're still friends, I guess. At least for the duration <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> we we have a lot of episodes to get through. <laughs> it's true. It was interesting to also talk about the program that I was a part of that started my career. So Alexis oversees a program called MAPE, which is another acronym, but it stands for the Multicultural Advertising Intern Program. And that's run by the 4A's Foundation. And so I I started my career 20 years ago, coming through as an intern through that program. Um, and it was just really cool to kind of share with her and with you. And that's kind of how we got into our heated discussion about my own perspectives of what it was like starting off as an Asian female in the industry. How'd you find out about the, the ad industry? How'd you know you wanted to go into advertising? Honestly, I used to watch um, Melrose Place <laughs> and Heather Locklear's character. I can't remember her name anymore, but she was, she was a professional ad exec. And so I thought, well, when I grow up, I'm going to be like her. <laughs> it was as deep as that, Raman. Well, I mean, look, Alexis was saying, because I think she started in academia and she, her first exposure to the ad industry was Mad Men Mm -hmm. and the diversity issues. I thought that was just so present because she's like, yeah, we've come far, but maybe we haven't. It's, um, it's really interesting. I, I love it when outsiders come into an industry. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. And I think that these pipelines to help people get their foot in the door, all with great intentions, are a way to solve that. It was really interesting to hear Alexis's perspectives of when that can kind of fall apart. Um, so that was really interesting. And also just kind of hearing about her own story, right? Like she's a Latina female who's obviously representing diversity, but she's she's in an industry that is male dominated and primarily um, majority Caucasian and white. And she's representing the cause, but she's also facing that on the day-to-day perspective as well. Well, I mean, it's her background growing up wasn't 
the same of a lot of people in the industry. I mean, she talks about growing up next to drug dealers and as an innocent kid, not knowing that they were drug dealers. Yeah. So like, that was great. I, it's not great, but it's just like, probably better that you didn't know that they were growing up. Yeah. Like, hey, that's just my neighbor, Joe. <laughs> well, I also like how, you know, so she brings like who, who she was into her day job, but then she also has to do interesting things to fit in. Mm -hmm. Like the story about her nose ring. Um, but that, so, Sharon, do you do anything to fit in that, that isn't like who you are every day? Not anymore, but I do think that in the beginning of my career, I did. And that came up too, as we were talking to her. I think when you're early in your career, there's a lot more pressure to want to fit in because you're just trying to figure it out, like what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, I'm supposed to be in this office at nine o'clock and they tell me that I'm getting an hour lunch break, but is it really an hour? Is it okay if I take the full hour? I mean, just things like that. And so, you know, just um, professional culture is something that takes some getting used to. And I think that looking different, behaving differently, all of those things are, were also a big part of it in the very beginning of my career. Well, I think we should just jump in and let everyone hear our conversation with Alexis. Yeah, let's do it. Well, <laughs> Alexis, I got to ask, what do you do for a living? <laughs> what, 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 what do they pay you for? <laughs> nice. So what I do right now, I am the director of the 4A's Foundation, specifically handling the MAPE program. So in a nutshell, 4A's is the American Association for Advertising Agencies. And the 4A's has a foundation, which I like to think of it as the philanthropy of the 4A's. And so in the foundation, we house a lot of initiatives that um, have to do with diversity, with talent, with allowing people of color to occupy this space that we are now starting to come into. Um, and so the MAPE program falls under that foundation, along with our high school programs, as well as our scholarships and awards too. So we give out a number of scholarships and awards to um, people of color, young professionals who are, you know, getting again, their foot in the door. Um, and so the MAPE program stands for Multicultural Advertising Intern Program. And this program was established back in the early 70s, 1973 to be exact. And so we're up coming up on our 47th year, which is amazing. And you would think that in 2020, we wouldn't need a program like this anymore, but it looks like we still need it. And so this program effectively allows access into the advertising, marketing, and media industries for students of color. And so this internship program works, we mainly work with juniors and seniors in college. And we, you know, have a rigorous application process, selection process. And we've grown from within the first year in 73, being a program of just 20 students to in 2020. Now we have well over 325. Um, so we're still working on that number because we're agencies are still, you know, choosing their intern for the summer and what have you. But yeah, I directly oversee that entire program from inception to conclusion every single year on the fellowship side, the internship side. But I also oversee our alumni program. So once these students have successfully completed their summer internship, um, they become alum of the program. And so what we do is we continuously develop them and pour into them. We provide them with skills-based learning. We provide them with personal and professional development within their specific disciplines in advertising and marketing or, you know, overall. Um, and personal coaching too. We try to um, pair them up with mentors in the industry that can continuously, you know, oversee their growth because let's face it, whether you're it's your first year or it's your 10th year being in this industry, you still need someone to kind of fall back on. You need that support system. So, you know, from a holistic view, we try to cover all the bases, starting off with the fellowship and ending with our alumni. So in a nutshell, <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> and so Alexis, tell us why. Why is it so important that you're creating this pipeline for the advertising industry? Yeah, it's super important because this industry has been an industry traditionally that has not seen a lot of diversity. Um, it is a white male dominated industry and is probably one of the industries that has the least um, or the more poor numbers when it comes to diversity. 
Um, I prior to this, I was in academia. I worked in um, in a university setting in higher education, and those numbers are um, better off when it comes to diversity. Not in terms of the um, staff and and faculty, but in terms of the students. Very diverse number of students, but we don't see that in the workforce specifically in this industry. And so, why is that? You know what? I don't. I don't even know. I think. I just think that perhaps, you know, especially, and, and I, I, I kind of think of Mad Men when I think of the ad industry, you know, yeah, it takes me back to that series because, you know, when I first, so in full transparency, because I come from um, higher education and I have an academia background, when I got into the advertising, marketing and media industry, I was like, what the heck is this? Like, I need to learn about this industry. I have no idea because my background is DNI. So, you know, in my Sorry, prior- Sorry, what is DNI? Diversity and inclusion. Thank you. Got it, yes. got it. <laughs> so that's my background. And I work with students of color. So it just seemed like a natural fit when I came into this industry, yeah. working into, in the DNI space and the foundation. And so, you know, I had to actually learn the industry. And so I, someone recommended, they were like, you know what? You should watch Mad Men. And I'm like, okay. And at that time, Netflix had it, you know, for free. And I was like, all right, let's do it. So I watched Mad Men and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is how it was back in the 60s, like back in the 70s, really? And it actually made me uncomfortable as a woman of color too, because to see that the way that, you know, in the in the series where if you've watched it, it's um a lot of the women have secretarial roles. Yeah. You know, there yeah. aren't. Peggy's like the only one who rises through the ranks. Yeah, right? yeah she's yeah. the only one. Absolutely. She's, oh, she's the force to be reckoned with. Yeah. I love her. Um, so, yeah, we see her grow into this copywriter, into this great person. And it just put into perspective for me, like, damn, it's really not that long ago that we weren't given these kinds of opportunities, you know? Yeah. And so, but do you that, mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, yeah. my experience, like, with the ad, ad industry, like, I came from the client side mm-hmm. and I would come to New York for these meetings. That's actually where I met Sharon, right? Yeah. Oh, and nice. do you think, um, where is I going to go with it? Um, is the issue less about male, female now and more about um, ethnicity? Because the thing I experience, this is kind of weird, but it's like the stereotypical like ad agency executive that I would meet, mm-hmm. um, or at least the, the AE, the associate level, was like a female liberal arts major. Yeah, yeah, More females than males. Like, may, you know, you'd see, you'd meet the occasional Don Draper that they would bring in for the big meeting, mm-hmm. but the day-to-day people I was working with were basically people my age that were female. And yeah. um, I, I don't know, is, is that what, is, is gender diversity the issue anymore? Like in Mad Men or is it ethnicity? No, I think it really is ethnicity and racial background. Um, okay. I think that with the industry, once diversity became an issue, once people were speaking against it or, or towards it, saying we need to fix this problem, um, the industry took that as gender diversity. And so mm-hmm. I, what I'm assuming is they thought bringing in more women would solve the problem. But it's mm-hmm. not just that. And we see that yeah. in multiple different ads that went wrong, like the Pepsi ad with, um, oh my gosh. With oh, yeah, that was terrible. Or- Oh, Kendall. Yeah. Kendall Jenner. Give yeah. the police officer a Coke. Racism. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it's going to fix everything. No, boo boo. It's not going to fix it. <laughs> so like ads like that, um, you know, it shows that there is a need for diverse thought, diverse background, people who are going to bring an authenticity to the problem and be able to say, hmm, this doesn't really seem right. Let's revisit that. And so if you bring more um, people with diverse thought, with diverse backgrounds, that, you know, just solves so many issues. And so in DNI, yeah, I think the lack is people um, of diverse ethnic backgrounds. So in tech, you know, when Google or Facebook gets in trouble for not having enough brown and black people or women, frankly, like mm-hmm. it's coming out of tech startups for several years now. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a sausage fest around the table, not gonna <laughs> lie. And um, and I started in corporate America where you had these DNI initiatives. So, yeah. you know, I, half of my managers in my corporate career were women, mm-hmm. um, and diversity of all stripes from other countries, other creeds based on college recruiting and stuff. Um, but then you go to the tech industry and they're like, well, there aren't just enough women engineers, there aren't enough Hispanic or black engineers, right. Mm-hmm. In for tech. And so there's these like systemic truths and mm-hmm. there are ways to address it. And whether it's girls who code or things like that, they're trying to solve it. But 
I guess my question is, in the advertising industry, what is that systemic truth or that institutional truth, whether it's true or not, that exists? You know? Mm-hmm. Is it just enough? Bra- they're not enough brown marketing majors? Is that uh-huh. it? Because their yeah. parents told them to go into engineering? No. You know what? The talent is there. The talent is there and they're ready. And I think our program proves that from the trajectory and the how we've expanded exponentially since we first started. You know, I mm-hmm. think that it's just a matter of giving these people a chance and a leg in and really um, seeing them for who they are. Um, I think that's, that's what the issue is. You know, there's so many, so much talent, so much talent across the nation. And that's the unique thing about our program is that we take interns across the nation. Well, yeah. What, what's driving the retention issue? Why are they bowing out? I think there, um, there aren't enough resources for them. Um, and I think certain agencies could do better with their diversity and inclusion initiatives. So like really assessing what the issue is. Um, some agencies don't even have a DNI person. They default to their HR to be that diversity and inclusion representative. So I think the real, the hardship of being in a role like this is having to do the work while defending the work. Sometimes DNI people, we're getting this talent, we're trying to retain them, but we have to constantly fight for why this is good. And we can see in examples like the Pepsi one, why it is good. Hello, mm-hmm. if you had a person of color on that account, I guarantee you they would have said, um, y'all need to revisit this. And they'd have to be more senior on the account and willing <laughs> to speak up in the meeting. Right. Absolutely. Because I think they're also battling with tone deaf clients, right? Mm-hmm. So when you have big corporations hiring big agencies, you've got majority archetypes in these roles so it's white male led both on the client side and on the on the agency i'm gonna push back there i'm here's where i'm gonna push back no in all seriousness yeah go ahead so because and again you know ramen you and i are 20 years into the industry so a lot has changed but when i was on the agency side i mean part of part of my experience in mape was that yes i was one of i don't know i think i was like one of 109 interns that summer Mm-hmm. just in New York City, but I was only one of four people that got hired at McCann Erickson. Mm. And McCann Erickson is a huge agency, but they had only taken four new people for their account management team. And I was definitely the only person of color. So the other the others were female, the other three were female, but they mm-hmm. were all white. Mm. And so already I was like, I was a minority of a minority just coming in, right? One of four, even though I was, uh, and it was a small group of people, and within, Alexis is right, within three to five years, half of us were already out of the industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so, Sharon, why do you feel, what was the reason why you got out of the industry or at, at that three to four year mark? What were you feeling at that point? So I, I think at that point, I ended up going client side. So I think, you know, I think when you're on the agency side, wanting to be the client is kind of the the gold standard because you want to be the one making the decisions and driving the strategy. Mm-hmm. And so I pivoted out of agency role. Um, but it was also to your point, Alexis, there was nobody else at my agency at the time that was a woman of color in a lead role. And mm-hmm. I hadn't to go to, to like mm-hmm. really kind of have these conversations. Like I don't even think I was aware of what I was missing. I just knew that I didn't feel like I had a path, a very clear path, for where I wanted to go. Cause every, when I looked around me, everybody above me just didn't look like me and they didn't have the background that I had. And they also didn't have the shared perspectives that mm-hmm. I had either going into a meeting. You know what I mean? Like, and Raman, I think you recognize this too. I mean, so many of those big brands, big package goods brands are actually marketing to people of color. But and so this is where I want to defend the client side a little okay. bit. And I'm, look, I'm recovering marketer. <laughs> I'm not on the client side anymore. Right. Um, I went to startups instead of agencies where there's bigger diversity issues, but like, or just as big. But on the client side, and again, recognizing that I grew up in a bubble, like a really good company that had like, knew it had a lot of work to do, but was working on diversity initiatives. I'm almost positive that's how I got hired, right? Right. Um, but two things to kind of defend the client because even the account that we were on together, like the one where I was a client and you were at the agency, Sharon, that's how we met. Um, the brand management track, it started with Dennis, a white guy. And then it, there was an Indian, Indian guy, uh, right. Sundar, mm-hmm. um, who's risen through the ranks and then, uh, MC, a Puerto Rican woman. Mm-hmm. That was the team. And very wow, quickly, those, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, again, this is the bubble. This is but, the bubble of yeah. Proctor. But let me, um, can I say a but though? Yeah. But please tell tell everybody what the product was. It was Head and Shoulders. What's wrong with that? So it was shampoo. But that is see that's a product that has been historically one that heavily markets to the multicultural audience, right? Like, oh, the uh, fair. Okay, so the, no, but, I, but I could tell the same story on herbal essences and Pantene as well. To be clear, um, like the rest of the portfolio. But here's here's the real bias. Um, I think the client side, the company in Battle Creek, Michigan, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, you know, pick your town, Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. hires an agency in Los Angeles and New York. Very often, you know, they hired the best agencies on the coast. It's weird, right? Like I was going to say, hires an agency on the coast because that's where all the creative ideas are. That's where all the diversity is because there's more diversity in New York City or Los Angeles or Austin than there is in Cincinnati or Battle Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the expectation, and this maybe helps your argument, Alexis, the expectation is you guys in New York and LA at the agencies have to reflect what America wants. Now, the flip side of that, it's, oh, you guys are, we actually dealt with this a lot. The folks in New York creating the ad campaign didn't understand. They'd never been to a Target or a Walmart before. Right? Oh, like, okay. Got it. Uh, if, whether you're bl- black or brown yeah. in New York, if you've never been a black or brown person at a Walmart in yeah. Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. Um, and it was like experience. these field trips we would take them on. Um, anyway, I guess it's, <laughs> I, I, I acknowledge I grew up in a bubble. Um, my company was, I, but I think the work has to be done both on the client and the agency side, Sharon, I guess is where I was going yeah. with it. Yeah. Well, and hiring, having the right people around the table because the, the, the client writes the brief, the agency is the it's one who me. protects the client from being tone mm-hmm. deaf. I would hope. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's very true. Yeah. But then what we're also seeing, and Sharon, I was actually going to ask you in terms of when you decided to leave at that three, four year mark, how was your direct report? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> well, so Alexis, I want to, I want to back up a little bit. Um, first, I love your opinion of this and you're, you're the friend, how you're framing the issues in the space is fantastic. But did you, did you want to do this growing up? Like when you were little Alexa, wherever you grew up, like did, did you, when did, when did it occur to you to go into DNI or like, what did you want to be when you grew up originally? Or what did your parents want you to be when you grew up? Oh my gosh. Oh, my parents thought that I was going to be a vet because I have this just unnatural empathy for animals and I love them so much. Like I would be that, I think they caught me once. I was outside the house. Everyone was playing. My, my older sister was playing. All the neighborhood kids were playing. And you see my little self in the dirt watching the ants and all the bugs and just like watching them as they went about their day. And my mom was like, are you okay? Like she turned to my dad like, um, we're going to need a, an intervention or something. I don't know what's going on. So <laughs> yeah, they thought I was going to be a vet. But when, when I went to college, I, I actually didn't know. I was really heavily into sports. I did a lot of sports while I was in high school. So I thought naturally I would be like a physical Would you play? Athlete. I, I ran track. Cool. I ran track and I played um, softball and I managed the boys baseball team. So I was really heavily into sports. Um, I couldn't do basketball because I'm vertically challenged, but you know, <laughs> I did that in middle school though. <laughs> so naturally I thought I was going to be like an athletic trainer or a PT. And then I started taking those courses and it just didn't really like call to me until I started taking certain psychology courses and sociology courses. And I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. Learning the way that with which we do things, um, the reasonings behind it, what happens in the psyche at certain moments, how trauma has a big thing with that. And I, speaking of trauma, I think that that has a lot to do with, with DNI because there are certain traumas that we, we carry with us based on our life experiences that we're like, okay, I need to tread carefully in this situation, or I can't say this, or I can't say that. And so I think that that has a big thing to play with how people of color show up at work every day. But um, yeah, so I took my psych courses, originally was going to be a therapist, and um, became a mental health counselor, liked it, but didn't like the, although I understand it, I wasn't okay with the thick line that had to be drawn between you and the patient because I'm the kind of person that I love to get to know people at their most fundamental level and just talk and hash it out and like, you know, share experiences. That's how I interact. That's just 
my language. And so I couldn't interact with patients, obviously, as in depth because I'm helping them through their um, treatment. And so you can't have that dependency. You can't have a patient depend on you that much. So while I understand that and totally respect it, I knew that that's not how I wanted to work. And so after that, I entered into academia, started working with the EOF program in New Jersey, which stands for Educational Opportunity Fund Program. And this program was established, I want to say maybe 68. Yeah. Um, For the same reason why MAPE was established, to allow students of color who normally would not have access into college, into the university setting, not only gain access into it, but thrive while they're there. So I served as an academic counselor and I was, you know, the person, the advocate for all students of color that were in my program. And certain students of color couldn't be in the program because there's a, um, an income bracket that you have to meet. So, you know, socioeconomically, we, we cater to a certain demographic. And so I found that even some students of color on campus who weren't a part of the program were still coming to our office because we were the only people of color that they saw with mirrored within the faculty and staff. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a huge kind of thing. Um, And so then after that, I was like, it was at that point that I knew I don't care what I do in life, but as long as it's advocating for my fellow people of color in whatever way, shape or form that is, that's where I I need to be. And so when the role opened up here and within the Forest Foundation, it was just a natural fit. And I was like, you know what? This is this is what I'm going to do. So I want to ask an awkward question. No, uh, go ahead. It's a question we've all been asked, and I know you're going to roll your eyes when I ask this to you, but um, Alexis, where are you from? <laughs> and where I are you am- from? <laughs> and no, two, you know, there's two answers. There's two answers. Yeah, right? There's the, like the city you exactly. live in. I'm, in from, yeah. I'm from New Jersey. Exactly. And then the second, the follow-up. So right. where are you from, Alexis? <laughs> Facts. That's always, I think every person of color resonates with that because it, it has a duality. There's right, a duality. Exactly. <laughs> So where I'm from, um, in terms of city, Jersey City, New Jersey. JC. Um, yay, North Jersey. <laughs> but where I'm from ethnically, I am from Puerto Rico. And I was um, born here in Jersey, but raised in Puerto Rico until I was about five years old. I went to kindergarten there. So that was an interesting experience because I learned both Spanish and English at the same time. Uh, you preempted my my racist questions. You're like, right. do you speak Puerto Rican? I do. Oh my God, do I? It is the only slang ever. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's Caribbean um, Latinos. We have a certain twang and a certain slang to our dialogue that- You do? Also, really? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the thing with, with the Latino um, experience as a whole. Someone from the Southern American countries like Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, totally different dialects and totally different words than we do. So like Mm -hmm. for me, passion fruit, if you're in Puerto Rico, is called palcha. But if you go down to the Southern American um, countries, it's called maracuya. And so it means the same thing. But unless they know that, they're going to be like, what the hell is a... (laughs) And in DR, Dominican Republic, it's called Chinola. So it's like we have different words that mean the same thing. Um, But just the way with which we say it, the twang, the quote unquote swag you bring to it has total different implications. (laughs) Wow. Nice. Yeah. Born in JC, grew up in Puerto Rico till you were in kindergarten and then Mm -hmm. came back to Jersey Mm-hmm. Came back, been here ever since. Um, it was difficult kind of making that transition back to English. So I do have to say that in, in trying to focus on relearning English, I lost a little bit of my Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents are, my mother was born in Puerto Rico. My father was born in Jersey City. So, um, and my mother came over when she was, she was fairly young, maybe like six. So she was basically raised here too. And we spoke majority English in the household. Kind of, we spoke Spanglish, but because both of them were kind of raised in the States, um, English was the predominant language. And so I, I lost a little bit of my Spanish as I tried to relearn English when I did come back. When you, when you count, do you count in English or Spanish, like in your head? Is it English I, or Spanish? It's English. Yeah. <laughs> it's and English. when you dream, do you dream in English or Spanish? I dream in English, but there have been moments where I've dreamt in Spanish, and those moments have been particular to my grandmother. So if I dream 
about my grandmother. It's in Spanish. And she That's beautiful. Is, yeah, she's yeah. from the island and she is, you know, a big part of my life. Um, she's actually going through uh, first stages of dementia right now. So it's kind of, it's hard watching her, but mm-hmm. it's also fun to relive those moments because her long-term memory is solid. It's her short-term yeah. memory that's suffering right now. And so when I ask her about her childhood and growing up on the island, she can recount those memories like it's nothing. Oh my and God, so that's awesome. I think that's why when I dream about her, it is in, it's in Spanish. That's so beautiful. I feel like you should record <laughs> that, you know? <laughs> so that you'll have it for later. Yeah, she, she's okay. my rock, man. She, she's the rock. <laughs> So how how would you say you're different today than you were as a kid when you're growing up? What's different about you today? I think the the main thing that's different is my um, emotional intelligence. My mother always raised us putting ourselves in other people's perspectives and other people's shoes, but it's different when you witness certain things. And I think you know, growing up in Jersey City, you witness a lot that you wouldn't witness in other other um, places. And so, you know, homelessness being one of the bigger things, Um, witnessing, you know, I honestly, if we're keeping it real, real, I can't, I can no longer tell the difference between um, a firecracker and a gunshot because the area that I lived in was very crime ridden in terms of like, it was drug infested and, and things like that. Like my next door neighbor was a drug dealer. So and I, I didn't learn that until later on in life. I was always yeah. wondering, like, why, is, why are different people always going into that house? Like, it's never the same person. And then I realized my, my father looked at me like, really, Lex? You can't put two together? Come on, re- think real hard. So I think that experience, you know, it, it molded me differently. And I was able to be empathetic at a, at a younger age. But applying that into my adult life, um, yeah, I... I think emotionally, I'm just more in tune and self-aware with myself and others. And I'm able to approach situations in a very, um, at a very basic level, you know, and I think that's what's missing in a lot of different industries to be, to be quite frank, the humanity and the meeting people where they are and talking to them as though they matter and they mean something because they do like, we keep this world running. So why not show basic human decency and have a random ass conversation about something, you know? And I think we don't have enough of that. Just learning about people, who they are, where they come from and what What makes um, them. What do you think are, um, I don't want to come back to like these institutional truths. Like what has to change? Mm-hmm. Like, is it, we all just, you just need to have randomly scheduled lunches with someone in a different socioeconomic spectrum or like, how, how do we, how do we, we're not going to solve it, you know, in this podcast, mm-hmm. we're not going to solve it this year. We didn't solve it when we elected a black guy to be the president. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Wave a magic wand. What do we got to do, Alexis? Oh my God. That's a very dense question because it involves, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> it involves so many different facets because you're right. There's not just one thing that we need to do. It, it goes into multiple different areas. And I think one of the bigger things is, is that basic, you know, human level of just inquisitiveness why don't you be curious why when did we lose that curiosity we all have it as kids you know we're so inquisitive about different things we absorb information as sponges and it's like and you see two kids playing together of different races they don't see color at all and it's like when did we lose that when did we become aware of of ourselves our race and and um how we're different from one another and why did it grow and transcend into this area where sometimes people are now scared to approach other people. Like I will have a white person come up to me and be like, Hey, your hair's curly. Um, when did it get like that? You know what I mean? And it's just like, but that, but I welcome those kinds of questions because ask me, ask me anything. Like if I can help you in your journey of trying to figure out this world or like how you fit and how we can all work together, I'm all for it. Now, if you touch my hair, it's going to be a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Don't touch my hair. Like Solange said, (laughs) but yeah, like, you know, just, I think we all need to just let our guard down and ask those questions and be okay with getting an answer. That is not what we're accustomed to or what we may have anticipated the only way well, I, to I, grow is I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think you can tell people to be colorblind I think it's the opposite I think if anything yeah this um and I'm an atheist but from um 
what's the word uh, uh, to to be secular about race is not the answer. Mm-hmm. Be like, oh, I don't see color. All lives matter. You know, like, come on, bullshit. Mm-hmm. No, you have to oh, acknowledge. Yeah, totally- yeah, you have to acknowledge that. Oh, she's brown, or she wears a headscarf, or she mm-hmm. has two mommies, or you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then have because I'm we have Sharon and I both have kids at a pretty young age, and it's articulating that there are differences and there are things you can't say. Hey, Selma's a pretty big deal because some really bad things happened. Mm-hmm. 40 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Or 50, whatever many now, right? Um, I don't know. I just, I don't like the idea of whitewashing is the wrong word to use, but like mm-hmm. to say nothing, there are no differences. Like, yeah, there are actual differences. There's a reason brown people or black people don't live in as good neighborhoods mm-hmm. or you don't see as many at your school. My daughter's like the token Asian at a very white daycare, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and she acknowledges that because the last daycare wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. And we, t- we talk about that. Because otherwise, if people don't frame the world that way, and I'm not trying to pit people against each other. It's just like, mm-hmm. these differences exist. They're not going anywhere. Unless oh, we actually, t- acknowledge them. Yeah, absolutely. But so, so there's systemic things that are separating us. But there's mm-hmm. also, so what I'm talking about is um, if, if we encourage one another, our children, to just, you know, embrace differences in others. And not approach them from a place of of fear, but like genuinely be inquisitive and ask questions and and learn yeah. and empathize. Then we're setting them up for success on a systemic side. 100%, absolutely. 100%. Like why why has it taken Jersey City is getting a Whole Foods right now because we see a lot of you know white people from lower Manhattan, Midtown and et cetera, they're moving into Jersey because Jersey City's right across the water. They're moving in because of the fact that it's cheaper. So what happens, the community has now said, oh, we have more white people. Let's get a Whole Foods because we know that they don't shop at ShopRite. So you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. yes, on a systemic level, that ish needs to change. Why are we segregated in certain neighborhoods and things like that? Um, I'm more of a C-Town guy. Just uh, yeah. <laughs> Facts, Sea Town, Bravo, all of them. <laughs> my corner store, my bodega, right, right. there. <laughs> I'm telling you, not, I, I love corner store sandwiches. I think they're the best. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> so, are there things, Alexis? You work in diversity and inclusion, but do you ever feel like there are things that you do sometimes to fit into work or culture? Can you be more specific? So, do you straighten your hair? Yeah, like or. Oh. or mm-hmm. Okay, so. If I have an interview, I will straighten my hair. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Why? Talk yeah. to that a little yeah, bit. Well, not anymore. But when, so when I interviewed for the four A's, I let it all hang out. And I was like, nope, curls, everything. What I did. Oh, you were was, interviewing for a diversity role. Right, exactly. exactly. That too. So it's like, it only made sense. What I did do was um, I have a septum piercing and I did hide that specifically not for any like racial thing or anything, but generational differences, depending on who was interviewing me, they would have probably looked at me like she got something in her nose. <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I did. So I did hide that during my interview, but that, you know, that was just a, a generational thing. Um, no, I've embraced myself now more than ever being in a diversity and inclusion role. And I think one of the bigger things, so we had a, um, a MAPE Summit, which is a uh, two-day professional development conference for our alumni of the program. And one of the things that, one of the themes that was brought up, one of the things that we talked about was showing up to work as your authentic self. What does that actually mean? Can we do it? What's the backlash that we're going to get? And things like that. And it's come to you know light that a lot of people feel like they can't. A lot of people will feel judged. A lot will feel as though, depending on how they physically show up at work, will mitigate or not mitigate, that's the wrong word, will challenge any ideas that they bring to the table. So they won't be taken as serious um, and things like that. And so I think that that's still an issue in the world, um, obviously. But how do we fix that? 
we have to pour into the next generation to come. And I think, listen, we've got Gen Z coming into the the workforce right now, and they are mm-hmm. a whole different. That's a different ball game right there. <laughs> they are unapologetic. They say what's on their mind. They do not fear. It seems as though this is from the outside looking in that they don't have a lot of the fears that we had when we were growing up, you know. And yeah. so I appreciate them for that because they empower others to just show up as you are. Who cares, you know? But yeah. it's still something that is that is widely um, an issue. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we we interviewed Jesse, um, who's a meeper, and we don't know if it's going to air before or after this uh-huh. uh, um, episode, but we spent a good, what was it, like half an hour with him, Roman, before we got into the meet and found out some dirt on Jesse that he just hadn't shared up until that moment. And well, and it's not even dirt. It's just things that happened in his life. And he was like, yeah, but I didn't want, he said, I didn't want to lead with it right? because mm-hmm. if, if I, if he opened with that statement of stuff that happened in his childhood, that would have like cast a, a lens on a job interview or anything. Yeah. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And there are some truths that you can't wear proudly on your sleeve, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, when you or say truths that you can't wear proudly, what kinds of truths are you speaking of? Like, what are the truths that you feel will not, Would you, you know? You know yeah. So without revealing his, you'll, you'll have to listen to the episode, Alexis. Yeah. Now, hey, I will uh, definitely know. <laughs> you, wouldn't, um, you wouldn't have said, hi, I'm Alexis. I grew up next to a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't have oh, led with yeah. that. Got it. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, um, and, and likewise, you know, like um, a Muslim friend might not say, you know, oh yeah, I'm so and so, and you know, mm-hmm. my dad grew up in a village in Afghanistan. You know, like because yeah. mm-hmm. there's you hear that, or you hear Yemen or Syria, you're like, oh, terrorist. Um, yeah. There's a reason I shave my beard before I go to interviews or I come mm-hmm. back into the country, uh, and I'm I, I'm a really like cynical, frowny guy, but I smile in airports, baby. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm the most charming person you will ever meet in an airport. <laughs> Oh man, but isn't it isn't very strange to witness that? women? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, oh man. I know. And here we are just trying to figure it out. You'd think that we would have, have figured it out by now. And like I said in the beginning, my program, I would think that in 2020 it would not be needed anymore. But it seems as though we need it more than ever now. Yeah. You know? It's true. <laughs> and so if we were to go back and talk to little Alexis as she was growing up. And if you could tell her anything, give her any advice based on what you know today, what's something you would go back and, and tell yourself? Oh, wow. What would I tell you? The neighbors are drug dealers. Right. <laughs> right? First of all, <laughs> don't say hi to everybody on the block because you don't right. know. <laughs> um, what would I say to her? Wow. That's actually a good question. And you know what? I've, I've thrown this question at other people, but I've never had it thrown at me. So I've never had to think of an answer. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think what I would tell my younger self is to keep your heart open. I think that if we lead with love, we can make such a difference. Not in the, I mean, hopefully in the world. If everyone has that mentality, yeah, we can see a lot of difference. But Leading with love has such a different effect than when you lead with, um, you know, those, those lenses that you have. Um, and I think that that has such, like, I can't tell you how many times that I've, you know, had a, a crappy morning and like, I just, it is not my day. Words are not my thing. I don't want to do nothing. And I've gone out and I've challenged myself to say, you know what? Smile, lead with love, treat others amazingly, even though you've had this incredible shitty day. Um, let's just try and be more loving and empathetic and lead with light. And I've done that. And I can't tell you how many times it's completely changed my demeanor for the entire day and for the week at that. So it's like, I think if we did more of that, it would be amazing. And I would definitely tell younger Alexis to not lose that to keep it alive and that there are people who are going to try to take that away from you or make it seem as though it's not worth fighting for. It's not worth keeping at the mm-hmm. forefront, but it totally is. I love that. <laughs> can, we, can we, uh, can we get some scoop on you now? Can we go into like, Oh, please. I am an open book. Parts? You can ask me anything. Let's do it. All right. 
I I know you live alone. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think we've confirmed at least for the show um, relationship status, but mm-hmm. I'm curious to know from a dating perspective and just from like meeting people perspective. Have you thought about what your ideal partner would look like? What they would be like culturally? Have you had any? Um, do mom and dad want a Puerto Rican boy? Yeah, like does mom and dad. Do they? Oh want no, they threw that out the window so long ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Between me and my sister, they were like, "Okay, yeah, no, it's as long it's as they treat happening. you right, I don't care." Yeah. <laughs> um, so who I, have you brought home that, like, you know, feel this way? So you know, so my I feel as though out of both of my parents, my mom is super progressive, like. She understands that you have to change with the times. My dad is not so much. And so, you know, as even, even with the Latino, I guess, race um, or ethnic, you know, background, whatever, that within our people, there's a lot of colorism that exists within us. And so we, so for instance, in the Dominican Republic, um, Trujillo was one of the dictators, and I think this was in the 50s, one of the dictators in the 50s. And he tried to adelantar la raza, which means to advance the race. He tried to accomplish this by wiping out all of the Haitian um, people that lived in DR. Um, Jesus. And he tried to, uh, yeah, unofficially whiten the race. What, what year was this? This was in the 50s, I think. Actually, you yeah. know what? Is it, well, the, reason I, the reason I ask, it sounds a lot like what the Khmer Rouge did in Cambodia with like yeah. year zero or whatever. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so like we within ourselves. So if you ask a person of Dominican descent, even they may be like as black as night in terms of their skin color. They will deny. And I'm not, I don't want to generalize and say all of them. It's not all of them at all. But I, the, in my experience, so, certain um, people that I've met with it, coming from the Dominican Republic who are darker skinned have a tendency to deny their African roots and say, I'm not black. I'm just, I'm really dark Indian because in the Caribbean, we have not only, you know, um, we were conquered by Spain, but we also had indigenous peoples living there. And then when the slave trade came over the transatlantic slave trade, they stopped in the Caribbean first before they made it to the U S. So we have bloodlines coming from all these different places from Europe, from our white ancestry to our indigenous ancestry and then our African ancestry. And a lot of Latinos, my father included, denies his African descent. And he will say, and he's, he happens to be one of the lighter Puerto Ricans. So he's, he's pretty much like really white skin, (laughs) but, um, so he can pass, you know, my mother is, um, a little darker than him, but like not too much. And so, um, yeah, my dad is like, I belong to the motherland. That is where my that is where my roots lie and blah blah blah. And I'm like, Dad, can you come on now? Let, let's look at our ancestors. And you, you got you can't tell me that we don't got black in our blood. You know what I mean? So right. things like that. Um, but my current boyfriend is Dominican, actually. Um, and he, we've been together for three years. It's so funny though, because he's not my ideal type. And I, I say that be, I say that with two things. I don't think that an ideal type exists. Um and I think he's proof of that because what I can envision myself to be in isn't what exactly I need at the moment. And so we met in college, did not date in college because you know how freshman boys are. They're not worried about girlfriends. So <laughs> we didn't date in college, but we were still great friends. Um, and yeah, we stood in touch after college as well. He went into the army and whenever he would come back, um, you know, from his training or whatever, he would um, contact all of his friends and say, hey, I'm back. Let's meet up. Let's all party. Let's do whatever. And so we would all go out. And I don't know what happened. One night he just made a move. And I was like, you know what? F it. What can go wrong? Not knowing that it would be the most healthy relationship that I've ever been in um, because of his, my emotional intelligence, his EQ as well. He has a great EQ and we're just able to communicate on a level that I've never had with anyone else. And so we rarely argue. And I, I, I read a meme the other day that was like, you know, she's your girlfriend when she argues with you for no reason. Cause that's true. sometimes. Right, right. <laughs> but we rarely argue. And when we do argue, it's like, no, let's communicate about this. Let's talk it out. And so 
He's not like tall, dark, and handsome at all. He's we're a very small couple. I'm five three. He's like five six, five seven. So Aww. we're small. <laughs> but it just it works so well. And I didn't know that he would be the one that that would make me this way and um not make me this way, but allow me to thrive in this kind of space. Yeah. And do mom and dad like him? Oh, they love him. Yeah, they absolutely adore him. And I love his mom. She loves me. His whole family is great. There's like a hundred bazillion of them. They The first cousins are like so close. And I'm just like, oh my God, I go to these family functions of his and I meet someone new every single time. And I'm like, how? It's been three years. How you still got new people? Girl, <laughs> girl when are you guys going to just hit, get hitched? <laughs> Listen, I was hoping for it to happen 2020, but with the way <laughs> things are happening right now... <laughs> With this virus out here, I don't we're know. Just, we're man. just glad to be alive, right? I know, yeah. <laughs> and he's actually finishing his um, master's degree. He's getting his master's in global affairs at Rutgers University. And he's mm-hmm. the first in his family, just like me, to obtain their master's. So we share in that um, feat, that milestone. But now he's worried because of everything that's happening with you know this virus. And he's like, yo, jobs are not secure right now. And I don't know if I'm going to be hired. So if that's the case, then I'm going to go back and get my PhD. F it. <laughs> so yeah, I was hoping 2020 would be my year with that, but I don't know. I can't say that anymore. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what do you think, Sharon? Speed round? I think so. Yep, I think we're ready. Are you, are you ready for the speed round, Alexis? I am ready, Freddie. Let's do it. What is one thing about you that no one expects? No one expects me to be as much of an introvert as I am. I am, as you can see, I'm an extrovert. Like I like um, talking to people. I love being, you know, the person that gets everyone hype and lively. But as much as that is a true part of my life, I am a homebody. So it will take a lot to get me out of the house. Like you got to be, if I go to some a function of yours, know that you special as hell because I don't like leaving the house and I'm an introvert when I'm at home. So you're loving this right now. We oh, all, we're all shelter in place. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thriving. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's one place that you've been to that you'd want to go back to? I want to go back to um, Thailand. I went to Thailand on um, in January of 2016, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I loved it because it wasn't the traditional like, oh, let's go for vacation. It was no, we're backpacking this whole trip and staying in hostels and getting to know cool. people. And that's what I loved about it. The experience, the you know, people from Thailand, the culture, it's just so amazing and so zen. And I just loved every experience of it. So I would definitely go back and do it all over again. Did you do a lot of the cities or did you do the, like, the islands and the beach towns? We did a lot of cities. So we did um, landed in Bangkok. Then we went to Chiang Mai up north did like an elephant sanctuary where we were able to like sleep in huts with the elephants. Like wow. they were right outside sleeping alongside of us. Oh, cool. um, and then from there, I, we did pass by the beaches. I think we went to um, Kopipi for like one or two days. And then we went to the national park. Oh my God. I'm forgetting exactly where that was. Kausok. Okay, yeah. Kausok national park. Unfortunately, I couldn't go to the park because it was raining that day, but it's, it's all good. I still love the experience. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. Um, this is a two-part question. Are you more of a book, movie, or TV show person? Oh, movie and TV for sure. Like, and I, I right. do read books. I do read books. I actually. <laughs> so we for the record, she does read books. For the books. record, yes. <laughs> we educated up in here. Got it. <laughs> but well, what's um, one of? Mm-hmm. What's one that has characters that you really relate to? Um. Okay, I will say. It is Elizabeth Acevedo's with the, the Girl on Fire. Um, it's her latest book that she came out with. So I recently joined a book club with a, a few of my friends, and we specifically wanted to t- tailor this book club to reading Latinx authors. And so Elizabeth Acevedo is a woman of Dominican descent. The main character in her book is actually Puerto Rican, and so from Philly, Um and that, like her whole experience was like, oh, I know exactly what's going on. I live the same life, you know, not live the same life, but, you know, being in an inner city, being Latina at that and a light skinned Latina, you know, you have your, your own separate struggles that you have to um, go through because you have to prove that you're like a part of the crowd and stuff like that. Like, you know what I mean? So um, 
yeah, that book resonates with me the most. But I am a binging person. I love binging stuff on Netflix. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. We've been talking about it, but I'm not going to say what what show we've been talking about. <laughs> I refuse to watch it. I refuse to watch that. No. <laughs> oh, that um, with the the Tiger King. Yeah, whatever. Tiger King. Oh Tiger my King. God, me too. <laughs> Roman, I'm with you. I refuse. To Stay strong, Alexis. See, we're going to come out of this. Pan- we're going to come out of this pandemic, Alexis. And 90% of the population is going to be dumber because they watch Tiger King. And you and me, Alexis, we're going to run for office. Okay, Yay. we're going to rule this shit. You guys, you guys are going to run the world because I'm like three episodes in, so uh-huh. I'm like halfway through, and uh-huh. I, I am definitely dumber. Than what I no, but you know what? It's it's become so popular because of the situation that we're in now. Escapism. Yeah. It's escapism. It's exactly. It's an escape from reality. And that's why it's doing so well. But yeah, I'm hesitant on watching it because I heard, I saw the trailer and I was like, what in God's yeah, name is do going it. on? Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, okay. Here's another one for you. What's your favorite mom dish? Mom dish? As in yeah. dish what, does mom, what does mom cook for you that you really love? Oh my God. My mom cooks so well. Um, let's see. Mom dish. I would say, um, arroz con gandule and please explain (laughs) for the gringos please explain (laughs) arroz con gandules is um yellow rice yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. yellow rice with pigeon peas um but you you can make it in a in various different ways you can make it with just the the um pigeon peas itself within the rice what are pigeon peas so they're these little like they kind of look like grown lentils um okay they're like super big, not super big, but like way bigger than what a lentil is. But they're mm-hmm. somewhat flat, I guess you can say. Um, and you can make that in various different ways. So she usually pairs it up with ribs, which I love ribs. Um, but you can make arrojunto, which is, you know, you can add chicken to the the rice itself and cook the chicken within it. And it just gives it such a different flavor. So arroz con gandula is definitely a staple. It's a, it's definitely a Puerto Rican staple. <laughs> nice. Sounds yummy. Yeah. <laughs> What's your least favorite food? Least favorite food. Um, oh my God, I'm a fatty, so I love. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I'm still thin because, like, I I pack it down. But um, oh my goodness, least. You're favorite. young. Your metabolism's gonna catch up with you. I'm telling you, as a fellow fatty. Come <laughs> in, don't jinx me. Don't jinx me. Yeah. <laughs> don't jinx her. Don't jinx her. That's why you gotta um, get married now. You gotta lock it down. You gotta lock it down now. No, um, I don't think I have a least favorite. I think what I don't like is um, people always like badge me for this. They're like, "How can you be Latina and not like spicy food?" I don't like spicy food. It's just at not all. At all. Any so like whether it's curry or like hot spicy or savory. Like I that? can take some spice. Like I love, I like curry. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's hot, spicy food that I don't like. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Alive? Mm-hmm. Doesn't no, matter. Could be dead. Mm-hmm. Let me see. Um, I would probably want to interview Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, because... I was so this is totally because my boyfriend was doing um, a paper the other day or some kind of assignment and he was reading the book that he had to read. It had her in it. And, um, you know, she was basically put on a seat in the UN simply for her last name, just because it was she was a Roosevelt and she wasn't prepared, wasn't, you know, um, super nervous. Like, how can I do this? And she totally killed it. And I would love to kind of get her perspective especially within that era like how did you do it and what would you tell us in the 20 21st century now on what we're doing like what should we be doing better and how can we you know part the red sea for the next generation kind of thing so yeah i just love to hear her her experience and what that was like for her um so she'd probably be a person that i would definitely interview yeah yeah mm-hmm. i didn't realize that about her getting a seat in the un Yeah. And they totally did it just because the, the Roosevelt name was such a, um, dense name that had so much weight to it, so much meaning to it that they were like, we can't have just anybody on here. Like it has to be a Roosevelt. And so Mm -hmm. they asked her and yeah, they kind of didn't ask her. They voluntold her. 
<laughs> this is what you got to do. And she was like, you know what? All right, let's do it. <laughs> right. So funny. Yeah. Okay. Last question. You ready for the last question? Yes, ma'am. What does being a model minority mean for you? Being a model minority means using my voice for those who are less fortunate and for those who have not been able to, who have not been awarded the luxury and the experiences to be able to speak. That varies within a number of people. So whether that is, you know, people of various ethnic backgrounds or people coming from low socioeconomic backgrounds, I want to be a voice for those people who did not get a chance to share their own. That's beautiful. That's a a great way to close it. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for just sharing your truth and having a good conversation. Oh my God, it was a, and I can't wait to see, this is, sounds like an amazing, amazing podcast. And so I can't wait to follow it through it and see all the wonderful voices that you guys have on this show. Definitely is something that is going to be on the top of my list. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit monmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. When MTV did its top 100 video countdown, I wrote all of the the artists or and the musicians and the and the names of the songs down, and I passed that around. And you know, it was so obvious. It's like you should be a social commentator. You're not a doctor. You're not a pre med. You're not an engineer. That's insane. You are meant to comment on social social culture. That's your thing. You're a pop culture guy. And being Indian, though, this is where the Indian part plays in. And Raman can relate to this and Sharon, you probably too, which is that's not an option. That's not a thing. You can't go be a journalist or a or a, a rock critic or whatever else you're thinking about. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all model minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.